Good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your scripture to John chapter 3. And as you're turning, I'll allow our kids at Children's Church Age to be dismissed to Children's Church this morning. If you were to ask a close loved one for an honest assessment of this question, what would they say? Am I known to make more of Jesus or myself? Am I known to make more of Jesus or myself? That's a challenging question. Now, if you if you said to me, well, well, give me your life and ministry verse, Pastor Jeremy, <clears throat> I'd say to you, John 3.30, that you've already heard many times this morning, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, that might sound humble, and maybe years ago when I selected that verse, maybe that's what I thought, but it's far more now a reminder for a very self-centered and prideful man. The world does not need Jeremy Hatfield to be made known. The world desperately needs the name of Jesus Christ to be made known. Our self-promoting nature says, let's build our brand. Let's make sure that we are promoted. The Spirit and the Word say we should advance the name of Christ. The theme of our sermon this morning is the increase of Jesus and the believer and the church's life is for His glory and for our good. And I'll invite you, if you're able, to stand and honor the reading of God's Word as we look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. As we continue in John's Gospel, the Word of the Lord says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainan near Selim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let us pray. Father, in an age that promotes talk about yourself, have people look at you, have people think about you, and in all of us having a sinful nature that also echoes that type of mindset. This text is radically counterculture. 
radically counter sin nature in us. But I pray for all those who have been born again as this chapter begins with. I pray that the echo of our hearts would be John 3.30. The increase of Jesus and the decrease of self. We can't do that. Only the Spirit of God at work in us can do that. And Lord, I pray that you would make it so. For those who have not yet turned to the glorious Christ, who we have read about, sung about this morning, I pray that today they would turn to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll begin and end with that verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's the heart of our sermon. It's really been the heart of our worship service. Daniel built the responsive reading around that verse that we repeated over and over. So here is the great John the Baptist saying, don't look at me. Don't put the focus on me. Put the focus on Jesus. And all of us who are in Christ should echo verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. But why? I mean, really, what is, what's the foundational truth underlying John's very right desire to minimize self and put the spotlight on Jesus, why at the heart of that, what is under verse 30? And what's under that is who Jesus is and who we are. There is one Christ, and you're not him. There is one Christ, I'm not him. John repeats here in verse 28, what has already been stated in chapter 1, verse 20. I am not the Christ. In recent weeks, I watched the documentary series on Netflix, Waco, American Apocalypse. It's a disturbing documentary, to say the least, but it's about the religious group inside the Mount Carmel compound called the Branch Davidians. It's a cult that broke off from Seventh-day Adventists. And you, you may remember this back in the uh, early 1990s, I believe. And a shootout took place between those Branch Davidians and the ATF. And it led to a 51-day siege that concluded with a fire causing the deaths of 80 people in that compound. Well, the leader, who, by the way, took lead of that group violently, took the name David Koresh. And I looked through some, some of the papers, uh, or some of the headlines and papers that day of things he may have said, and he is on the record, David Koresh, as saying, if the Bible is true, then I'm Christ. Speaking of himself. Well, if John the Baptist, forerunner to Jesus, knew he did not deserve the title Christ, there is no way the despicable David Koresh did. There is one Christ. We are not him. 
So it's the worthiness of Jesus that is the reason we should say along with John, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So here we are in this text. And as you come to this text, really one thing we learn only in John's gospel is that Jesus and John for a time had overlapping ministries. We see here that both are baptizing, though we learn in chapter 4, verse 2, that it's not Jesus who is baptizing, but his disciples. Well, you see there in verses 25 and 26 that John's disciples have some type of conversation with a particular Jew about purification. And this discussion leads to concern among John's disciples that we are losing people to Jesus. So there must have been, uh, uh, in, in terms of Jewish rituals, there were some that resembled baptism that maybe fit under the umbrella of these purification rituals. And we don't know the exact conversation between John's disciple and the disciples and this Jew, but maybe we could speculate and think, well, maybe this Jew said something like, well, well your leader, John, he's known for baptizing. And he's been really popular. But people are now going to Jesus, and where does that leave you, the followers of John? Well, something in that conversation hit a nerve with them. And so they come to John, and they say, Rabbi, all are going to Jesus. And that's obviously exaggeration. John is still baptizing. Not everybody is going to Jesus. But I want you to see in this, his disciples are panicked. John is not. You can imagine maybe the disciples of John show up. Their, their hair is disheveled. They're, they're wringing their hands. Uh, maybe they're breath, breathing into paper bags. And they're saying, we're losing. So for them, this is disaster. And, and John in this account, for him it's delight. And he says there in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John is so content in this account. Why is that? And the reality is, John knows he wins when he loses people to Jesus. John said, we're good. Because his contentment is rooted in fulfilling the role that God had called him to. Well, what is that role that God had called him to? Well, that's in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So John has a crucial role in redemptive history. He is to prepare the way for Christ, to be the forerunner, to be witness for him. But he was not Christ. And this is, this is not new even in John's gospel. We're only in chapter 3. But we have seen that John, both the author and the Baptist, knows that his role is not to be the Christ. We saw in John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light. There's no confusion in, in author John or John the Baptist. John's not the light. Jesus is the light, but John is to bear witness about the light. And I think John rejoices in that purpose. John is not competing with Jesus. John is proclaiming Jesus. We see in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John can say, listen, I'm, I'm a voice, just a voice. Jesus is Lord. I'm, I'm the voice that's bearing witness about him. So here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus' ministry is taking off and John's maybe is starting to receive, his disciples are distraught, but John is not because he knows his role is to bear witness about Christ. So I don't want you to read verse 30. I don't want you to hear attitude from John. Like, fine. He must increase, I must decrease. You know, you think of a, a, a child that gets caught sneaking a, a candy bar or something. And they're just about to, they've got it open, about to bite into it. Mom says, hey, you didn't ask for that. You can't have that. Dinner's coming up. Give me that candy bar. Fine. Here, fine. John is not begrudging in his attitude here. He says with, I think, great joy, freedom, contentment, he must increase. But I must decrease. That must there. We saw the, the divine must in some verses in John's gospel. He knows that this is right and good that Jesus increase. Now, not everybody would have agreed with that. We see that the Pharisees were often jealous of Jesus. When Jesus entered Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, there were these perpetually, seemingly jealous Pharisees. They see how the crowd responds to Jesus. And in chapter 12, verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. In their minds, people are going after Jesus. This is tragedy. Now look at the difference in the attitude of the Pharisees who want the spotlight for them. And even earlier, John wants Jesus to have it. If you look back in John chapter 1, verse 35 and following, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples go and they follow Jesus. John has lost disciples to Jesus. And he does so joyfully, with great contentment. And the only way he does that, if he knows who Christ is and who he is. He knows his role and he's content with it. Pharisees, they want to compete. There's no joy in that. John wants to proclaim, bear witness, he is content. Folks, the path to contentment is not to demand that you be made much of. 
It's rejoicing in the role that God has given us to make much of Jesus. To take the spotlight off us is so countercultural in our age of self-promotion. But it's so satisfying and so relieving to us when we do that. Can you be content with the role that God has called you to? I was reading part of Mark 5 yesterday in my devotional time. and There's a man possessed by so many demons that they're called legion. I mean, if you read this account, he's, he's living among, in the tombs. He has this incredible demonic strength. He's basically an outcast cut off from society. And Jesus delivers him. Jesus frees him. And he goes to Jesus and he requests this. Verse 18 of Mark 5. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So here's this man, incredibly grateful, loves Jesus. He's been free and he basically let me go with you. Peter's going, John's going, James going, let me go with you. Let me travel with you. That seems like an honorable request, and it is. Here's how Jesus responds to him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus doesn't permit him. He says, i got a different role for you. I want you to go home. I want you to tell people about This man could have been bitter about that. I didn't get what I want. How does he respond? Verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The word Decapolis means ten cities. When this guy went home, he made home big. You know what else he did? He made Jesus big in his life. He made Jesus big in those ten cities. He was content with the role that God had given him. He wasn't stuck in disappointment. Can we be content with where God has called us, what role he has given us? Uh, You know, last week I turned 50. Many of you know that well. I'm likely never going to be a mega church pastor. My role is to give the church God's word and see them grow in it and become healthier because of it. Most days, I'm content with that. What have you received from God? What is the role God has called you to? Maybe some of you are being called to vocational ministry. If you are, go spend your life serving the Lord. Be willing to be anonymous. Be faithful for the rest of your life and be content knowing God's reward. But some of you may be called to glorify God as a stay-at-home mom or school teacher or farmer, a nurse. Can you be content with allowing Jesus to increase and you decrease in your life in whatever role God has called you to. 
We see that in this story in John the Baptist. And then we see that no one can say, another must become greater, another must increase, and I must become less or decrease, unless they have great humility. Uh, J.P. Luau and E.A. Nida say, in some languages, the increase or decrease of respect or honor must be expressed idiom idiomatically. For example, he must become more of a chief while I become more of a follower. Or he must become a big man while I become a small man. It takes a lot of humility to say, I'll be a follower. Or I'm a small man. And it really does in a look-at-me culture like we have in a social media age that says put yourself out there and make sure people know about you. And we see this all around us, right? In, in entertainment, humility is really not what people are striving for. Maybe it's self-promotion so there will be more songs downloaded or mo more movies gone to be seen and more dollars in the bank account. In sports, even in team sports, a player might be interviewed after the game, an individual player, and give a nod to teammates in such a way that brings the spotlight back on the individual. So we see that there is a, a lack of humility in our culture, maybe even a false humility at times. So why is John so humble? Especially when we consider what Jesus himself said of John in Matthew 11, 11. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, surely that's reason for you know, John to puff his chest out a little bit. Pat himself on the back. Make sure he's featured in all the Christian publications of the day. But he doesn't. I don't know if there's any Christian publications of that day, by the way. But, but instead, John displays great humility. All right, well, what is the ground of his humility? Because I, I, don't think we, I don't think we genuinely work up humility very often. I think it's got to be rooted in something very real and true. So what is John's humility rooted in? I think, again, John recognizes who Jesus is, the Christ, and John recognizes who he is, a witness for Christ. And he knows that Jesus is so great, so glorious, that he is worth increasing in John's life and in this world, and it's right for John to decrease. Is that true of us as well? It's still true of Jesus. It's still true of us. This past week, I listened to a podcast. And the title of that particular podcast was Losing Your Husband at 20, a testimony with Delaney DeArmond. Now, you may remember this story because it affected us. I told you guys about it a year, year and a half ago. But Delaney... Grew up as a, a young girl in Arizona, and she was at our church, and I had the privilege of serving as her pastor. And then, several years ago, they left Arizona to move to Mississippi, up in the 
Fernando area. Um, and they, they live there, and I was honored to be asked to do her wedding a couple of years ago. Young girl, young lady, young lady, young guy, around 20 years old, and living for Jesus. This couple love Jesus. They're doing things right. Surely there's 60 years of marriage ahead of them. And no one could have foreseen that Max would be tragically killed by a drunk driver five months later. Five months into their marriage. It's a fantastic testimony that Delaney gives of God sustaining her through her horrific grief and testifying that no grief we go through is wasted. Our grief is not for nothing. But in that, as I'm preparing for this message and thinking of this text, one thing about the interview stood out to me that she said about Max. Max loved Jesus. Her husband had passed away. And it was, she said, lots of people would come up and just talk about what a great guy he is. He's a great guy, does, does these wonderful things. But Max would often say, I am so amazed that Jesus saved me. I'm so selfish. I'm amazed that Jesus saved me. He'd say something like that. And how right that is, church. Maybe you've met Christians whose attitudes make it sound like the kingdom of Christ is lucky to have them. Like, how did the church survive without them? in it. Her testimony of Max led me to spend some time that morning repenting of some times in my life where there has been that type of ugly pride. And the reality is a prideful Christian is a contradiction in terms. John Newton hit the nail on the head by writing Amazing Grace. God saved John Newton a former slave trader, horrific sinner, what undeserved grace. And we have beautiful testimonies in our church, being, people being saved out of some very obvious, blatant sin. But hear me, church. God's grace is no less amazing when he saves a fairly moral, lifelong church attender maybe struggle with a sin like gossip. It is amazing that Jesus saves any of us. And when we rightly realize that, humility cannot be absent in our lives. We have two universities in our town. We have Southern Miss and we have William Carey. William Carey got the name from the missionary William Carey. When his life was coming to an end, I think very much in the spirit of John chapter 3, verse 30. William Carey said to those around him, You have been speaking about William Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about William Carey. Speak only about William Carey's Savior. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our culture 
bombards us with a call to self-promotion. And church, I'm calling you to a radical rejection of pursuing worldly acclaim and calling you to a radical promotion of the person of Jesus Christ in your life. Now you should ask, why would I call you away from self-exaltation and to a Christ-exalting life? And I do that for the glory of God and for your freedom and your joy. Living for the increase of Jesus in your life is not restricting. It is freedom. And I want you to live in freedom. When John's disciples show up and they report, all have gone to him, they treat it like it's a tragic headline to open the top of the hour on whatever 24-hour news channel you watch. John did not hear it that way. I think John hears it. You, you, you maybe have seen in movies or uh, even documentaries how people received the news when World War II ended. This is not sad. This is wonderful. This is great news. John's disciples, they see Jesus becoming more popular. We're not trending anymore. We're not going to be going viral on Twitter. Jesus is getting all the attention. And they're distraught. John is free. Again, he knows he cannot carry the title Christ. He is not Christ. Imagine it this way. Imagine you, you get a job you know you're not qualified for. And I don't, I don't mean just a little bit unqualified for. Imagine you pass biology at 17-year-old in high school with a C. And they promote you to head of surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. That's not freedom for you. Like, this is tragic for you and everybody that's going to come see you, right? You know you can't handle that job. John knew only one person could be Christ. And not being Christ for John, but promoting Christ is freedom for him. I can tell you a church is in trouble when its ministry becomes more about making ministers famous rather than exalting Jesus. I read over an article by Brett McCracken this week. Here's what the article is titled. In praise of the boring, uncool church. That is a great headline. In praise of the boring, uncool church. But he talked about ministries that were largely faddish. Focused on a trendy, hip leader. Focused on big attendance. And that might look good real briefly. But he noted how often those type of ministries imploded. And he showed how those leaders soon had moral issues. And it's been shown that lots of those who attended churches like that eventually not just left the church, but left the faith. Well, what's the problem? 
Is the problem the size of the church? No, it's not church size. Is the problem that it was so predominantly made up of young people? No, that wasn't the problem. The major problems were the churches were so focused on the personality of the leader and seeking to be so culturally relevant and hip that it stopped being Christ-focused, Christ-centered. And McCracken encouraged the church, don't be consumed with the trendiness. Don't be consumed with building your brand. Don't foster a celebrity culture. He said this, the life of Christian faith should be altogether different. A long obedience, a slow burn, a quiet diligence to pursue Jesus faithfully with others in the community in good times and bad for better or for worse. With, will this form of plodding, old-fashioned Christianity go viral on Instagram or get featured in GQ? Probably not. But it will actually grow Christians to maturity and help them run a long, steady, and fruitful race as it has for countless saints over two millennia. I pray that I and you too will be counted among them. And may God keep Dixie Baptist Church Focused on Christ, saying He must increase and we must decrease. And church, if you're looking for joy, there is no greater joy than the freedom to exalting Christ and the freedom from exalting self. The world is going to tell us that the path to joy is making yourself known. The more the focus is on me, the happier I'm going to be. It is a lie. And I'm telling you, don't buy into that lie. Because it's exhausting and the result is misery. I skimmed over some articles about anxiety among YouTube and social media influencers. And it seemed the anxiety and the burnout among them stemmed from the constant pressure to put out more content and for people always wanting more of them. A constant focus on self doesn't lead to greater mental health, but greater anxiety. When we increase, our joy does not. But the more Jesus increases in our lives, so the more our joy. In fact, hear it from John. John says in verse 29b, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So here's the outcome. His joy is complete. It's not lacking. There's nothing insufficient about it. It's complete. But the therefore in that verse lets us know that's the effect. That's, that's what came about. Well, what's the cause of John's joy being complete. Well, John had just given an illustration to his disciples. Illustrations help clarify truth. I've tried to use illustrations this morning to help clarify truth that I've been proclaiming to you. Well, the truth that John is giving is that Jesus is the Christ, he alone, and John's role is to bear witness. Well, what's the illustration? Well, it's a wedding. Basically, he says, the friend of the groom is not the groom. Think of a best man today. Now, today, a best man might, might 
handle the rings. Usually that's given to ring bears. He may stand up and give a speech at the reception, but let's face it today, the best man role is largely ceremonial. Doesn't carry a ton of responsibilities. Not so in that culture. The friend of the groom did a lot for the wedding. He may have organized the feast that took place. He handled the wedding invitations list. He carried out lots of important tasks. But, but his greatest responsibility was to make sure the bride got to the groom. He stood guard before the bridal chamber to make sure only the groom came to the bride. And the joy of the friend is the groom receiving his bride. Now, we could imagine this. If you went to a wedding next weekend, and you got there, and the best man is elbowing the groom out of the way and getting in all the pics with the bride. Or he's feeding the cake to the bride. Or he's getting the first dance with the bride. You're, you're thinking this is insane. What have I stepped into, right? That's not even today how a wedding should look. The best man should be there to help and serve the groom and rejoice in the groom receiving his bride. This is John's point. For the friend of the groom, his task was to get the bride to the groom, and when that happened, there is great joy. That is John's role. He is the forerunner. He is bearing witness about Christ. Now Jesus' earthly ministry has begun. John's job is not to point people to John. John's job is to point people to Jesus. So the decrease of John's ministry is right and good. He's the friend of the groom. Jesus is the sole reason for John's ministry. And far from being sad about it, John rejoices in it. His joy is complete. I'm telling you, church, for most of the week, this culture and this world is going to bombard you telling you, you need to promote yourself. It's going to try to sell you that you need to exalt self. Don't buy it. That is the path to misery. Find joy in exalting Jesus. Well, you've heard over and over today, John's words, he must increase, but I must decrease. I've said it multiple times in our sermon. We've echoed it in our responsive reading. Hopefully you're going to read all through John's gospel. You will not hear any more words from John the Baptist. The author, John, gives these as the last words of John the Baptist, or probably even better in this gospel, John the witness about Jesus. And I don't think that's accidental. I think he wants to give us one last testimony about what the life of John the Baptist is all about. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Well, I've tried to apply this text throughout our sermon. But I want to conclude by saying, what does it look like in your life for Jesus to increase and you to decrease? And I, I can't fully answer that 
for you. But I think first and foremost, it has to be our identity is in Jesus. Not putting ourselves first, but finding our joy, our freedom, our contentment, our humility in knowing Jesus Christ. That the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out. His life was the perfect sacrifice so that sinners like us could be made right with the Holy God. One God, perfectly holy. One mediator. The only way we get to God is through Jesus. How could we make much of self when there's not one thing we could do to make us one step more righteous before this holy God? But also, how could we not make much of Jesus when he has done everything so that we can be right before a holy God? Maybe it's in reorganizing some priorities. I don't know that there has been a, a busier age than ours. Now, maybe every age says that. I don't know. But I know there's a lot of distractions, and I get it. I, I was figuring up this morning, even our the past Sunday through Saturday. I think in our family we had seven baseball or soccer games, if I'm remembering right. Soccer practice, a conditioning practice, and a choir concert. I mean, we're, we're busy, folks. We're running here and there. And maybe, maybe putting, making sure Jesus increases means less time, less devotion, less money to a thousand different things that might be distracting us from Christ and more emphasis on devotion to Christ. Even in church type attendance, one of the ways that we make Jesus increase or Jesus increase in our life is gathering together like this with the body. And yes, there's some who cannot gather or recognize that because of health issues or, or those other things. But Tom Rainer and Church Answers uh, came out. I want you to see this, uh, these statistics. Four types of church members based on their frequency of attendance. And he, he, they label them different things, but core, three to four times a month they attend church. They say 30% of the church, of church members do that. Marginal, come one to two times a month. 25% of church members. Fading. Four to ten times a year, maybe once every six weeks or so. 25% of church members. And then they label it cultural. Come one to three times a year, 20% of church members. And the way we, one of the ways we grow in Christ is coming together as the corporate body, worshiping Jesus together, hearing from his word, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, Bearing each other's burdens. There are 168 hours in a week. How much of that time is devoted to growing in Christ? We have a 75-minute worship service. That has to be one of our priorities. 
but in your own personal life. I'm a little embarrassed that, uh, I don't know about you, if you have an iPhone or whatever, my screen time report comes on Sunday mornings. I mean, why does it have to come on Sunday mornings, right? I don't know if I can change the settings, but it's probably good for me to see how much of my time per day is spent on a screen. I mean, it, it's amazing. Like, how does all that time go there? And then how much time am I in the Word? How much of the time am I in Christian fellowship? And that's some of the ways Jesus increases and I decrease. What other areas do you need to examine? What, what are some ways that you need to say, Jesus, I want you to increase, I want to decrease. Maybe it's just laying yourself bare before God in, in spirit and heart and mind and saying, I really want this. Lord, would you do this in my life? I'd encourage you. That's, our invitation is not just come down front, but throughout this week, seek ways to ask God, how can Jesus increase? How can I decrease? And all this also, we should say, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, let today be the day. Let's pray. Father.